1: for details that's r-a-k-u-t-e-n your cash back really adds up
2: today's sunday morning podcast is
1: sponsored by trex
3: at trex we know there's a
4: place for wood in your backyard we recommend the fire pit but when it comes down to choosing the right material for your next deck look no further than the superior beauty and durability of the number one name in outdoor living Trex delivers the look of wood without all of the work and the worry. And it's made from 95% recycled materials, which makes it the right choice for your backyard 100% of the time. Make sure your next deck is built with Trex. Visit Trex.com to order samples.
2: I'm Jane Pauley and this is Sunday Morning. In a political era marked by bitter partisanship, one American family is leading the way toward encouraging the best from people in public life. They do it through an award honoring the memory and the words of a former president. Martha Teichner will report our cover story.
5: Named for John F. Kennedy's famous book, for 30 years, Caroline Kennedy has been presenting the Profile in Courage Award to public figures willing to risk their careers to do what they think
6: is right.
5: When you give the award, how does it feel?
6: Well, um, it's like meeting a hero. We've been given the privilege
5: of revealing this year's winner ahead this Sunday morning.
2: Our Sunday profile, Game of Thrones actress Amelia Clark. Tracy Smith does the honors. Her
1: character spent seven seasons on an epic conquering spree. So, how does Amelia Clark entertain herself? Have you ever watched any television show as intensely as people watch Game of Thrones? Friends. <laughs> the Unexpected from Game of Thrones royalty, Amelia Clark, ahead on Sunday morning.
2: Maraca takes a closer look this morning at the era of reconstruction that followed the Civil War, a period that's been widely misunderstood for roughly a century and a half.
7: Ask people when the first African American was elected to Congress, and they might guess
8: the 1960s. And they would never guess it was Hiram Revels from Mississippi. He takes office in February of 1870.
4: It's the first time in this country, or really anywhere, that an interracial democracy was created.
7: Later on Sunday morning...
4: Revels was born free in North Carolina.
7: The pioneering black congressman of Reconstruction.
2: Who's the boss of the Los Angeles Clippers? Same fellow who used to be the boss at Microsoft... He'll talk with Rita Braver.
9: Where do you want to go today? Because Microsoft After more than three decades helping lead Microsoft, Steve Ballmer retired as one of the richest men in the world. The magazines say this guy has $41 billion. I cannot fathom that.
10: I can't. No, in, in a sense, you have to say, what does it mean?
9: We'll go? We'll find out what it so means later winner, on Sunday morning. Season,
2: so I get the- Tony DeCopel has questions for actor Sam Rockwell. Steve Hartman tells us about an act of childhood kindness. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. For 30 years now, the Profile in Courage Award has been leading the way, honoring people taking the high road. With Martha Teichner, we're about to find out this year's winner in our Sunday morning cover story. John F.
5: Kennedy in front of PT-109, the famous World War II snapshot that doesn't tell the story of how JFK, the war hero, saved the life of a fellow crew member.
8: In American folklore, the good man always wins. The courageous man comes up. In
5: 1956, as a young senator, Kennedy published Profiles in Courage about some of his own heroes, eight U.S. senators who did what they thought was right, not
11: what was popular. Somebody who's willing to go against the... Wishes of his constituents for what he considers the best interests of the country.
5: Even if it destroyed their political careers. In
6: 1989, our family was thinking about how to memorialize him. And we decided to do it by honoring the quality that he thought was most essential in public life, which was courage.
5: Since then, every year, the Profile in Courage Award has been given for an act or a lifetime of political courage party not an issue. Year, Caroline Clark, Kennedy Clark, makes Clark. the presentation, now joined by her son, Jack Schlossberg. Civic involvement is your inherited legacy in so many ways. To
3: think that I inherited a legacy of public service just based on the
7: fact that I'm related to public servants would be to misunderstand what they stood for. So I think everyone inherits a legacy a public service just based on the men and women
5: who have served before them and have uh, made our country what it is today.
6: We wanted something that would be both symbolic and beautiful. It's silver
5: and heavy and made to look like a ship's lantern.
6: Hopefully the symbolism of the lantern will also help us all uh, go forward following our courageous leader. What does it say? That's a quote from the book.
4: In whatever arena of life one may meet the challenge of courage, Whatever may be the sacrifice he faces, if he follows his conscience, each man, I think he meant man or woman, must decide for himself
12: the course he will follow.
5: Elected mayor of New Orleans in 2010, five years after Hurricane Katrina, Mitch Landrieu inherited a city still ravaged by the storm. I would tell the people of New Orleans, look, if we're going to come back, you have to sacrifice. This is going to hurt. On his watch, the city was rebuilt. New hospitals, new schools, a new airport, a massive new flood protection system. But it was something much riskier politically that won Landrew last year's Profile and Courage award. Something suggested to him by his friends since childhood, trumpeter and New Orleans native, Winton Marsalis. He said, look, you should take those monuments down. Marsalis was talking about the Confederate statues regarded as an affront by African-Americans who represent more than 60% of the city's population. When he said that to me, really, it was like getting hit in the head with a bat. He waited, then chose his moment.
7: There is a difference, you see, between remembrance of history and the reverence of it.
5: After white supremacist Dylan Roof killed nine African Americans in a Charleston, South Carolina church. Taking advantage of the national outrage, Landrew announced that in New Orleans, the Confederate monuments would be removed. The blowback was immediate. Anybody who showed up to say they wanted to help started receiving awful telephone calls, death threats. The first contractor that showed up had a car firebombed. Did you have threats oh, against yeah, you? Oh, constantly. It was very intense. But finally, by May 2017, after more than two years of legal wrangling, all four of the monuments had come down. I was really just doing what I thought was the right thing. And I just didn't want to walk away from it because I wanted to be able to live with myself. In his introduction to Profiles in Courage, JFK wrote compromise need not mean cowardice. A surprising concept in today's climate of political divisiveness, along with bipartisanship.
6: John McCain was given the award in conjunction with Russ Feingold for the bipartisan work that they did on campaign finance reform.
5: In 1999, the Profile and Courage Award was given jointly to the two senators. Feingold, a Democrat, and McCain, a Republican, together pushed to regulate special interest money in politics.
9: The two of them were so dedicated to, and it was part of both their lives, but particularly my husband. It was the essence of who he was.
5: Cindy McCain is John McCain's widow. Did he get criticized? Was he vilified? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Cindy McCain remembers it was Ted Kennedy who told her husband he had won the award.
9: John and Ted were polar opposites politically. They fought on the floor, swear words. I mean, complete knockdown, dragout. And when it was over, Ted walked over to John, put his arm around him, and said, "Wasn't that fun?"
5: <laughs> the day of the ceremony was the McCain son Jimmy's birthday, so the Kennedys arranged for them all to arrive in style on a Coast Guard cutter.
9: John always described it to our kids: "Is this is kind of a beacon of light." So it was precious. It was very precious, yes. This was, I believe, the most special award to John ever.
5: The Profile in Courage Award has been called the Nobel Prize for Public Figures. The famous and not-so-famous have been picked. In 1997, Alabama Circuit Judge Charles Price was honored for making the very unpopular call that his fellow judge, Roy Moore, was violating the Constitution by displaying the Ten Commandments in his courtroom. And in 2000, a kid from South Bend, Indiana, named Pete Buttigieg, won the Profile in Courage High School Essay Contest. He wrote about Bernie Sanders. Now it looks like he's running against him for president. Look at this photograph
13: of another teenager standing next to her idol, Senator John F. Kennedy. My father was the mayor of Baltimore, and there was a big dinner, black-tie dinner, at which Senator Kennedy was going to speak. My mother, she said, if you want to go in my place to the dinner, please do. Yes,
5: that's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi.
13: It's a very sweet picture. (laughs) It's a great picture. Relating to the inspiration that President Kennedy was to my generation and those that followed...
5: And yes, Nancy Pelosi is this year's winner of the Profile in Courage Award. In a statement, Caroline Kennedy calls her the most important woman in American political history.
6: She is the first woman to be speaker. She's the first woman to be elected speaker in non-consecutive terms in over 60 years. So the courage that that takes really, I think, makes her an example and an inspiration for generations of Americans, uh, men and women. Coming from Caroline, that's an enormous compliment.
13: However, going with it, are shoulders for other people to stand on. I've stood on many women's shoulders who have paved the way for us, and now we have to pave the way for others. So, it's about the future. Please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats. Thin-skinned, she is not.
5: And with attacks coming at her,
13: even from within her own party, there's a lesson there. You have to be ready to take a punch, you have to be ready to throw a punch. And I'm in the arena, and I know that when you're in the arena, this is what you should expect. But if you don't have the courage, don't get in the arena.
8: It's time, America.
7: Time for Walter Winchell.
2: And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, April 7th, 1897, 122 years ago today, the day Walter Winchell was born in New York City. A tabloid columnist turned broadcaster, by the 1950s, Winchell was a regular on TV.
7: Mr. and Mr. North of South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. Washington, D.C.
2: With his staccato delivery, that telegraph sound and a trademark hat, Walter Winchell mixed breaking news.
7: Near Roy City, Texas, between San Antone and St. Lou, several reported killed. Just happened. We may have more on it later. Next is Arthur Godfrey. With
2: celebrity gossip.
7: Jack Dragnet Webb made a very big denial of Jack O'Brien's scoop that Webb would not next marry Dorothy Town of Hollywood.
2: Alleged communist sympathizers were a favorite Winchell target. Fort Monmouth, the McCarthy committee has summoned 20 present and former employees at this army base. At least 10 of them will use the Fifth Amendment as alibis. Starting in 1959, Winchell served as narrator for the television classic The Untouchables.
7: On hand to watch the mobster leave was Elliot Ness, chief of the unique federal squad known as The Untouchables.
2: Walter Winchell died in 1972 at the age of 74. But as we well know, the celebrity gossip shows he helped pioneer live on.
11: So, listen, I got a lack of experience, problem in the polls, and uh, you're one of the most experienced guys around. You want to jump on board, be my vice? Let's go.
1: It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane
2: Pauley. Sam Rockwell played an affable George W. Bush opposite Christian Bale's Dick Cheney in last year's Oscar nominated vice. He's about to step out in a very different role. But not before answering questions from our Tony DeCopel. Uh-huh.
14: Sam Rockwell's long acting career, like a toy chest, is full of cowboys You're trying to wear me down on this. That's my main intention. Outlaws. I think I'm gonna die. Well, don't keep going on about it. <laughs> Spacemen and monsters. Yeah! I feel like if you were to take every role you've ever been in and dump it out on the floor as action figures. It would be weird. It's a weird
11: pile of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of wigs and, you know, fake beards in there. What the crap? But for Rockwell, none of it is child's play. I've gone to therapy. I have an acting coach. I have a dialect coach. I have a voice coach, you know. I don't do it alone, you know. Why are you so open about the work? Not to be too pretentious about it, but there is a lot that goes into it. You, know, you don't just show up. My love, thou art my love, I think. In oh, fact, oh,
14: really? he's been disappearing into characters for so long. This is ridiculous. And so completely... The most well-guarded yeast factory I've ever seen. He was once about as unknown as a celebrated actor can be.
11: Now, most of you probably know me as that guy from that movie. You know, I'm talking about the main, not the main guy, but the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> But last year, Rockwell
14: took home his first Oscar. Don't I know your face from someplace? I don't know, do you? For his role as a racist cop in the movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing,
11: Missouri. I could arrest you right now if I wanted to. For what? For emptying out your bucket there. That's, that's against the being bad, against the environment laws. I want you to be
14: my VP. This year, he was nominated again for his portrayal of President George W. Bush in Vice. You're a kinetic leader.
11: I am. Mm. People always said that. Yeah, yeah. Then you get that thing, you know, in your lip and, you know, whatever. You can't drop into it. There you go. Sometimes. I, I, um, but, yeah, it's hard on your, uh, hard on your mouth, uh, W. It, yeah? A little. It gets in there, yeah.
14: Okay,
0: here we go, Deanna.
11: And now, at 50, he's
14: reminding audiences that he's always had the moves for center stage. Some of the parlor theme. tricks.
11: Yes, yes, yes. Let's see. Whoa. Yeah, a little hat trick. Whoa. Yeah, that's fun. In a new FX series, Rockwell plays Bob Fosse.
14: Everyone see what Gwen's doing with the arm? Break the legs. A dancer and choreographer turned director. <laughs> famed for movies like Cabaret and all that jazz. What was it
11: that drew you to him? I guess the charisma. There's a kind of cool guy thing about him, and there's kind of a, he was a genius, and yet he was also really messed up, you know? That's what we do though, isn't it? We take what hurts and we turn it into a big gag, and we're singing and we're dancing. There's also a haunted quality. Very haunted, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm attracted to characters like that, you know? It
14: helps that Rockwell is also a dancer. It is fun. Sort of. Well, who taught you? You taught yourself?
11: I just messed around. Just take those old... You know, I watched Risky Business. That's how I learned to learn how to do the splits. And I watched Footloose and, you know, and I, I fancied myself a young Kevin Bacon probably, you know. Sam Rockwell grew up the
14: only child of divorced parents. He shuttled between San Francisco, where his father was a labor organizer, and New York, where his mom was a struggling actor. So what are you getting exposed to at that age?
11: Well, well, you're backstage with, with, uh, with people, and it's a vaudeville existence, I guess you could say. What yeah, does that yeah. do to a kid? Well, it's good and bad. I think it makes you wiser, and it also makes you a little strange. When you go back to the normal sort of middle-class life or working-class life with, when you're at school with kids who are having sort of a normal existence, you, you relate to them a little differently. His first role was a
14: 10-year-old Humphrey Bogart in a Casablanca sketch with his mother. I was thrilling,
11: it was thrilling. I got the bug, like, right away. And he dreamed big. What did you want to be? Like any other young actor you want to be, there's people go through phases, they want to be Robert De Niro, you know, I went through a Robert De Niro phase, and you want to be Chris Walken, you want to be Gene Hackman. You're on your own. That's fine by me, Al,
14: really. But as he grew into being Sam Rockwell, other actors started to notice.
11: What kind of work, what government agency? Problem solving work.
14: George Clooney once the reportedly threw a golf history. club into a wall to get him into confessions of a dangerous mind.
11: Yeah, I think that's true, I think that's true.
14: Brad Pitt showed up unannounced at Rockwell's house to recruit him for another role. Ding dong, yeah. hey I'm downstairs, it's Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That happened. Yeah, yeah.
11: Take him down.
14: The secret may be that he has always anchored his roles in research. Come on, defamation of character, the it? To play a small-town cop in three billboards... What are you, an
10: idiot? Don't call me an idiot,
14: Dixon. I didn't call you an idiot. I asked if you was an idiot. That was a question. (laughs) He got you there, sir. He actually hired a small-town cop to read the script
11: and spend some time with him. I wanted to get it right, and it was helpful, you know just little details like their haircut, you know, and then just the way their demeanor and how they handle themselves.
14: After more than 70 films and dozens of television shows, Sam Rockwell is savoring the life he's built, including at home with longtime girlfriend
11: actor Leslie Bibb. Certainly in the love department, I'm very lucky. And... In the work department, I am so...
9: Your Please, heart geez, am soul.
11: These days,
14: having luck means pouring everything into his starring turn as Bob Fosse. Where'd you learn that?
9: I was dancing burlesque houses when I was 14. Huh.
3: While also one, considering
14: one, two, new possibilities. Two, <clears throat> I was 13. Does it occur to you, as it occurs to me, that in the same way you're name-checking these different great actors, there are actors coming up today who are going to be like, oh, you know, I just grew up watching Sam Rockwell. I just want to be like Sam
11: Rockwell. Well, that, that would be a beautiful thing, and that would make my, uh, my heart soar like a hawk.
2: So who is the boss who retired from Microsoft with a nest egg worth
9: billions? Rita Braver has the answer. The magazines say this guy has $41 billion. <laughs> That's
10: what the magazines say.
9: I cannot fathom that. I think most people can't.
10: I can't. No, in, in a sense, you have to say, what does it mean? What does it mean to my lifestyle? I could buy the LA Clippers. We
9: have any Clipper fans here! And so Steve Ballmer. Who, at age 63, ranks as one of the wealthiest people in the world, did just that. So where are we headed?
10: We're gonna head. Uh, our guys are warming up down there. We'll watch our guys warm up. In
9: 2014, Ballmer paid two billion dollars for this franchise. He's always loved basketball. What go? And is now the team's most enthusiastic fan.
3: Work defense.
0: Work. Let's go, trash! Let's go, trash!
9: Though they've yet to win a championship. In fact, when most people think L.A. basketball, the Clippers is not the team that comes to mind. Why would someone who lives in L.A. choose to come to a Clippers game versus a Lakers game if they had the chance?
10: Well, I think our team plays with a lot of grit, a lot of excitement, a lot of toughness, hardcore,
9: A swimming against the stream idea?
10: Yeah, exactly.
9: Ballmer is used to swimming against the stream. He grew up in Detroit in a middle-class family. His dad, a Swiss immigrant who never finished high school. Steve Ballmer took a risk in 1980 and dropped out of business school to help an old friend from Harvard undergrad with his fledgling software company, Microsoft. The friend, of course, was Bill Gates. Did you have in the back of your mind that Microsoft was going to be this gigantic success?
10: No, not really. Um, I wanted to have some responsibility, which I did. Uh, That was great. I wanted to work in a business that seemed to be rapidly changing because I have a little bit of ADD, if you will, in my personality, and I wanted to work Uh, For somebody who I
9: believed was really smart, and Bill was the smartest guy uh, I had met. Steve Ballmer became Microsoft's 30th employee, put in charge of sales and business development.
10: Where do you want to go today? Because Microsoft software can really help you get there.
9: While Gates and co-founder Paul Allen worked on creating software, Ballmer struck a shrewd deal that ultimately gave him almost 8% of the company. And at least in the early years, there was plenty of sparring among the big three, Gates, Allen, and Ballmer.
10: There was a lot of pounding and shouting, uh, as well as some cold shoulder, but make no mistake about it, Uh, none of the three of us was above a a little bit of shouting. Now remember, remember, we're 24, 25, 26 years old.
9: It was a heady time, the dawn of the personal computer era, as Microsoft morphed into a behemoth, launching revolutionary operating systems like Windows 95. In 2000, Gates named Ballmer to replace him as CEO, and Ballmer's high-spirited antics at company meetings are still legendary.
10: Developers, developers, developers,
8: developers, 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 developers,
9: developers, developers, as CEO, Ballmer helped make Microsoft one of the leaders in selling software systems to large corporations. But he acknowledges he was late in steering Microsoft into the search and smartphone markets. Steve Ballmer retired in 2014, leaving in his own distinctive way.
10: You've made this the time of my, my life. <laughs>
9: figuring out what to do after Microsoft was not so easy for Balmer. I went a little manic. I played a
10: hundred rounds of golf, as crazy as that, I was good too at that time. But I was manic, and then after a year, it's sort of, okay, breathe. And that's when I really took back control of my time. And that is a luxury.
9: Time is a prime commodity for Balmer, who for years has been keeping spreadsheets to track how he spends every minute from 9 to 5.
10: It's a budget of my time. It shows the number of hours a year I want to spend, 366 hours in the year on the Clippers.
9: But it was his wife of 29 years, Connie Balmer, who thought he should start spending his spare time on more than basketball. She'd been directing the couple's philanthropy, They are ranked among the top Americans in charitable giving. Their contributions aimed primarily at helping kids in need get a better chance in life. So Steve said, he was being a little controversial, he said, philanthropy, why do we need to do philanthropy? Why don't we let the government just give away the money and take care of these people? (laughs) Even though you've been doing it all along. said, really? Uh, And, of course, I challenged that, which got him thinking, hey, I wonder what the government spends its money on. I'm going to find out. And when he couldn't find out immediately...
10: That's where the idea of USA Facts was born.
9: Access to information is key to understand what's really driving the direction of our country. That's right, USA Facts, a free, nonpartisan website that's trying to provide one-stop access to all government data any number that the government collects, you're trying to put it at our fingertips.
10: Exactly, finances, we'll give you finances, where all the money comes from, how much we have. You wanna see what the population looks like that we're serving, demographics, family, population.
9: Launched just two years ago and headquartered outside Seattle near Balmer's home, he has poured about $30 million into USA Facts so far.
10: In 1980, we spent just under $3,000 per person on healthcare as a society. Today, we're spending just under $10,000 per person. Inflation adjusted, we're spending over three times as much.
9: And you can see how uh, the proportion of people in each state have uh, changed over the years. Balmer hired a team of young computer hotshots to help mine the information. But the third most, And he hired Poppy McDonald to lead the effort to get report. data from every federal, state, their, and local backyard, agency. So do you just say, call up the IRS and say, okay, can you tell us how much you brought in last year in taxes and where it came from? We do, and the IRS sends us data on CDs. They send it on, they don't, like, Email it or you no, can't get it on no. computer. CDs? On CDs. Like but USA Facts analyzed those so CDs visible. to create graphics showing how earnings have changed over the years. They also chart how much different income groups pay in taxes. You're obviously in the top 1% of the top 1%. Do you feel like people at that level are paying enough taxes?
10: I am nonpartisan. Right. If somebody asked me about me, about me personally, do I feel like I have obligation to give back to society, I'd say yes. Society has to decide on policy. If the policy is let's tax the more affluent people more, okay, I'm good with it.
9: Ballmer says USA Facts can help Americans determine what policies they favor on controversial topics like immigration.
10: HOW MANY UNDOCUMENTED IMMIGRANTS DOES THE GOVERNMENT THINK WE HAVE IN THE COUNTRY? IN 2005 THAT WAS 10.5 MILLION, TODAY THAT'S 12 MILLION. SOME PEOPLE WILL SAY, THAT'S A HUGE INCREASE. SOME PEOPLE WILL SAY, HMM, SMALLER THAN I MIGHT HAVE
9: THOUGHT. BUT HOW TO RESPOND WHEN POLITICIANS ASSERT THEY HAVE BETTER FACTS THAN THE ONES THE GOVERNMENT PROVIDES? IF YOU THINK ANY POLITICIAN
10: IS USING NUMBERS THAT AREN'T ACCURATE, BOOM! Call him out.
9: As for Steve Ballmer, he has a personal interest in the number one. Are there some big things you still want to do?
10: The only thing I can really, really, really point to that I'd like to do but haven't done is be in a parade with an (laughs) NBA championship. I want to make progress on everything else, but to hold that trophy and have it be ours? Yeah, yeah, that'd be on my list.
2: Steve Hartman shows us how good things happen when kids follow the crowd.
3: How do kids behave when no grown-ups are around? Danette Mabes of South Brunswick, New Jersey says, you never really know.
9: Because you're not watching him at that moment and at that time.
3: She had always just assumed her son was good.
9: Right. Until
3: recently, when 13-year-old Gavin Mabes got caught on tape showing his true character.
7: Oh, my God.
3: Gavin and some middle school friends had just arrived at a skate park. The park was empty except for little Carter Brunel, who was here with his mother celebrating his fifth birthday. (laughs) Carter is autistic. Big groups of older kids can make him nervous. So his mom, Kristen, was fully prepared to get him out of there. She just wasn't prepared for what happened next.
15: I don't know. They've really just shocked
2: me. It was unlike any experience I think I've ever had.
3: You know how middle school kids sometimes operate like they're in a pack? Well, that's pretty much what happened here. Gavin led the way and the others followed. The only surprise was that Gavin didn't start trouble, he started a friendship. This kid's already
2: better than me. Gavin's just going around with him and making him feel special. And the rest of his friends kind of followed suit and then started singing happy birthday to him.
15: Happy birthday!
2: That really blew me away. Because you just want to see the kindness in the world.
6: And I wanted Carter to have a good birthday.
3: It was such a great birthday. Yeah. And such a kind deed. Even the local police department responded. And we're going to throw you guys a pizza party next week over at school. But here's the best part since their first meeting, Gavin and the middle schoolers have continued to go out of their way to play with Carter. How you doing?
2: He was just so happy and he made us all happy. So fun to be around. Yeah. He's rad. <laughs>
11: <laughs>
3: and as for the moms, you're
5: awesome.
3: for them, this was a moment of parenting utopia, where the only thing better than seeing your kid treated kindly is knowing that your kid is treating others kindly, even when you're not watching.
9: That was so cool. I was just so proud of him. You want a race? He's good.
3: You did it right.
9: Thank
3: you. <laughs>
2: Game of Thrones is about to return for its final season with actress Amelia Clark front and center. Tracy Smith explains how Clark is a survivor in more ways than one in our Sunday profile.
9: Shall we begin?
8: Do we have a plan?
15: I will crucify the masters, I will set their fleets afire, kill every last one of their soldiers, and return their cities to the dirt. Spend any time
1: with Amelia Clark, and it's easy to see that she's not like the character she plays on TV. What's the big difference between you and Danny? The, the big difference, difference between is? me and
15: Danny? My sense of humor—in that I have one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that lady ain't cracking jokes. You stand in the presence of Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, rightful heir to the Iron Throne, rightful queen of the Andals and the First Men.
1: Danny, Daenerys Targaryen, Khaleesi, she of so very many names, commands an air force of dragons, walks through fire, and is a serious contender to win the Game of
15: Thrones.
9: We obviously didn't communicate clearly.
15: We had to discuss your surrender, not mine. As you may know, Game of Thrones, which begins its
1: final season next week on HBO, is the biggest TV show on Earth. <laughs> It's famous for killing off its lead characters. But so far, Clark has survived. Even though you are one of the obviously most powerful characters in the show, I don't think audiences would be surprised if
15: they killed you. Well, this is is the incredible writing, the incredible storytelling on the show. And in that way that life can be, shocking and frightening and confusing. The show doesn't shy away from that for the sake of storytelling. It embraces that uncertainty and that kind of, and I think that's part of the addiction that people can get with this show, where you just, you don't know what's gonna happen next because anything can happen. They've proved it time and time again. So without giving anything away,
1: when you read that final script, what happens to Daenerys? Yeah. What was your reaction?
15: It's 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 um it's sort of almost impossible to answer that question.
1: Without giving something away. <laughs> mm-hmm.
15: Yeah, now that's where I'm at. I'm like, I'm literally like, I could be really I'll be really bad at poker. Um I I I have so much to say <laughs> about that. I have so much to say about it, and I can't say any of it. I have been sold like a brewed mare. I've been shamed and betrayed, raped and defiled. In a series known for
1: its strong female leads, the arc of Amelia Clark's character is perhaps the most dramatic.
15: She's a girl who has grown into a power that no one could have ever seen coming from the timid, frightened, sold piece of property that she was in the beginning of the show. Amelia
1: Clarke's own beginnings were much more pleasant. She was
15: born in London and got her first taste of acting at just five years old. We did this play and I forgot all my lines, all four <laughs> of them. Um, and I remember just standing there and just smiling and being like, this is kind of cool. Hey, everybody's here, what's going on? And felt so at ease and so comfortable on the stage. Even not knowing your lines? Not knowing my lines, whatever it was, I just felt... Really, really, really comfortable there, more so than in a group of, like, three girls. And that has stayed with me forever, where, like, put me in a room with a thousand people and I'm zen, chill, completely chill. Put me in a room with six and I'm like...
1: (laughs) She went to drama school and landed a total of just two TV roles, including this daytime soap opera.
15: You stalking me around campus with a pair of binos like some pervert.
1: When she was asked to audition for Game of Thrones.
15: So I remember I was like, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna have to nail this. Listen to some gangster rap before I went into my audition. Gangster rap because. Just to try and like pump myself up a little bit. And that empowers you to yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah. You kind of get like a swagger, and then you're like swaggering down the street. I remember I was like no one was around, and I was kind of singing along in my music, like, yeah! And then you walk in, hello, hi, so nice to see you, thank you so much for seeing me.
0: <laughs> Come forward, my dear.
1: But the part she got required more than swagger. Her first scenes took guts. In the beginning, when you were most vulnerable, where yeah. you're, you're, you're sold to your husband, yeah. he rapes you, Yeah. there's nudity yeah.
15: that you
1: need to see her vulnerability. Yes. But for you as a young actress coming into
15: that, was it tough? Yes. In the first season, there were a number of moments where I was like, I'm going to go um, cry in the loo for a second. I'll be right back. You just stay right there. I'm just going to cry. And get it all out, and then I'm going to come out and be completely fine. <laughs> it was after that first
1: season that Amelia Clark faced an even tougher challenge off screen. You shot this first season yes. of Game of Thrones, and February 2011, Yes, you suddenly got the worst headache you'd ever had.
15: Yeah. Yeah, so basically I was in the gym, the, the most excruciating pain, like an elastic band just went like snap. In your head? In my head, like an enormous amount of pressure suddenly. And then very, very, very quickly, I realized I couldn't stand and I couldn't walk. And I managed to somehow crawl my way to the ladies room and be violently ill with this excruciating pain. And in that moment I knew I was being brain damaged.
1: She'd suffered what's known as a hemorrhagic stroke, bleeding on the brain. But incredibly, Amelia caught it in time to not only get it fixed, but return to Game of Thrones for season two. It's like, hey,
15: thanks for giving me the job. Super appreciate it. (laughs) Just had a little thing. <laughs> it's fine. I'm fine. And, and you so were pretty I was pretty fine. much fine. And, and you s- went back to work? Yes, and then six weeks after that, I was back at work.
1: But as she was shooting these scenes, there was another swollen blood vessel lurking in Clark's head. And two years after the first one burst, she was back in the hospital with another brain bleed. This one almost killed
15: her. So with the second one, there was a bit of my brain that actually... Died. If a part of your brain doesn't get blood to it for a minute, it will just no longer work. It's like your short circuit. So I had that, and they didn't know what what it was. So they literally were looking at the brain, being like, "Well, we think it could be could be her concentration. It could be her peripheral vision." Um, I always say it's my taste in men. <sighs> that's
4: it's no the longer part there. of the brain. That's, that's right. a part of my brain.
15: My yeah, my decent taste in men. Um, But there was all these kind of funny things and then for a very long time I thought it was my ability to act
1: you really did really
15: really really did that was a deep paranoia from the first one as well I was like what if something has short-circuited in my brain and I can't act anymore I mean literally it's been my reason for living for a very long time
1: the recovery process this trying to get through Having someone literally open up your skull trying to go past that you discovered was really
15: yeah, so that's, difficult. so that's, yes. I mean, the first time it was difficult. I, but with the second one, I, it it was, If I found it much harder to stay optimistic. I found it much harder to, to fight in the same, with the same veracity that I had before, because it just, it, it was just like, again. So but, how did you get through? Uh, You just, so it, that was very much like a day-to-day thing. And I definitely went through a period of, of being down, putting it mildly.
14: You weren't made to sit on a chair in a palace.
15: What was I made for?
14: You're a conqueror, Daenerys Stormborn.
15: But she says playing a strong woman on TV
14: helped
1: her to be one.
15: You go on set and you play a badass and you walk through fire and that became... The thing that just saved me from considering my own mortality, and it also gave her perspective on her own fame. It grounded me in a way that nothing else ever could. Yeah, you know what I mean. It just it it become. I, I'm I'm not. I don't Google myself. I'm not obsessed with celebrity culture. I don't. I'm. I really. I don't. I. I don't. I, I like walking down the street like a normal person. I miss interacting with. Humans. Can you walk down the street like a normal person? Yeah, pretty much. I get a lot of heckles. (laughs) Yeah, what's up, girl And they're like, bro. (laughs) Not ever going to happen, okay? Your Royal Highness, thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What do you do with the renown that you've gotten from Game of Thrones and from this character? What do you do now? How, How do
15: you use that? I'm really, really, really lucky. Because when you're typecast as a strong, empowered female, then you know you get those roles. And she's using that renown to start a charity for
1: brain injury survivors called Same You.
15: I really, really, really am going to put my heart, soul, and back into transforming aftercare for brain injury recovery and also just simply bringing awareness to the invisible disease that is brain injury. And at this point,
1: you're in the clear, brain wise. Completely in the clear at 32 Amelia Clark is
15: optimistic about
1: the future
15: from a very personal point there's been so much life that I've lived in the 10 years that I've been working on this show so you're saying goodbye to so much more than just the character you're saying goodbye to I'm saying goodbye to my 20s bye bye now um, <laughs> and how does that feel uh yeah it feels it feels um is, it feels as exciting as it does sad. Because I can't wait for the next, the next thing, the next decade. Literally can't wait for it. Now,
2: Morocco, with a closer look at a period in our history, both maligned and misunderstood.
7: Call it the original Great Escape. On May 13, 1862, just over a year into the Civil War, an enslaved man named Robert Smalls, who labored on a Confederate steamer in South Carolina's Charleston Harbor, set into motion a daring plan.
10: He saw that the Confederate crew had left, and he knew that oftentimes they left for the evening not to come
7: back until the next day. As his great-great-grandson, Michael Bulware-Moore, explains, for Smalls and six other slaves and their families, the stakes couldn't have been higher.
10: They knew that if they got caught, that they would be not just killed, but probably tortured in a particularly egregious and public manner.
7: Disguising himself in the top hat and long overcoat of a Confederate captain, Smalls piloted the ship past Fort Sumter towards the Union blockade... And freedom. It really blew people's minds because, you know, it just was beyond what people thought an enslaved person could do. Not every great story has to become a movie, but, I mean, come on.
10: There's so many twists and turns in the story that
7: would be just amazing. And how about this for a second act? After returning home to Beaufort, South Carolina, Robert Smalls was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, one of more than a dozen African Americans to serve in Congress during the period known as Reconstruction, when the formerly rebel states were reabsorbed into the Union and four million newly freed African Americans were made citizens. It was a time of unparalleled hope. Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates has produced a new documentary about Reconstruction, airing this month on PBS.
12: When you look at the radical, amazing changes that happened within a few years of the demise of slavery, there was a kind of irrational exuberance.
7: Gates says Reconstruction is one of the most misunderstood chapters in American history.
8: Black men could vote, and they were about to elect congressmen to represent them throughout the South. I mean, you go and you ask people on the
7: street who the first Black person was elected to the U.S. Congress, they're gonna guess it's the 1960s, the 1970s. And they would never guess it was Hiram Revels from Mississippi. Hiram Rhodes Revels was born free and served as a chaplain to Black regiments during the Civil War. On February 25th, 1870, he was sworn in as a senator from mississippi an office once held by jefferson davis who left the senate to become president of the confederacy
8: is this a big national moment oh it's a historic moment and it's memorialized in the famous courier and, and ives lithograph that shows the first senator and members of the house of representatives who were african-americans the famed printing
7: house created this lithograph featuring the african-american members of congress all of them Southerners, all of them Republicans, in 1872. Wow, look at that. Harvard University's Houghton Library
8: houses one of the few known copies. When Frederick Douglass saw the portrait of Hiram Revels, he said, at last the black man is represented as something other than a monkey.
7: So some of these men, seven years before,
8: are slaves. That's right, absolutely. There were only two of these men who were born free. It's the first
4: time in this country, or really anywhere, that an interracial democracy
7: was created. Columbia University historian Eric Foner estimates that about 2,000 African Americans held some kind of public office during Reconstruction.
4: We tend to think of slaves as ignorant or unsophisticated, but you know, they had been living in American society for their whole lives, and their parents had too. The the slave trade from Africa had ended long before. These people were Americans, and they wanted the same rights, the same opportunities as free white people had. How gutsy was it
8: for these guys, not just to try to be elected, but to get seated and to actually demand equality? Lawrence Otis
7: Graham wrote a book about Mississippi Senator Blanche K. Bruce, who was born a slave in Virginia before becoming a successful plantation owner in Mississippi. Bruce and his wife, Josephine, were one of the wealthiest African-American couples in America and lived in this townhouse in an integrated Washington, D.C. neighborhood.
8: This is not someone who was in over their head. This was someone who, despite all the odds against him, um, succeeded enormously.
7: The year he's seated in the Senate, 1875, is the apex of black representation during Reconstruction, seven House members and one senator. So that's the high point.
8: Yeah, no, it is. And so, But he doesn't get to enjoy that high point very long with his colleagues.
7: When neither candidate in the 1876 presidential election secured enough votes in the Electoral College to be declared winner, a deal was struck. Southern Democrats agreed to back Republican candidate Rutherford B. Hayes. In exchange, the federal troops who had protected black voters were withdrawn from the South. Black voting rights were gradually stripped away and black representation in Congress faded. Reconstruction was over and the Jim Crow era of segregation began. For most of the 20th century, Reconstruction was portrayed as a failure. This is how the South Carolina state legislature was depicted in D.W. Griffith's 1915, The Birth of a Nation. That movie, which cast the Ku Klux Klan as heroes, was a sensation with white audiences. President Woodrow Wilson even hosted a screening at the White House. And most schools taught Reconstruction as a misadventure at best. That's what I
4: was taught in high school in the 1950s. Well, Reconstruction was the worst uh, period in American history. It was a travesty of democracy. Black people misused the right to vote, uh, were not capable of uh, serving in public office. That, that was, what was
8: taught everywhere. For a young Henry Louis Gates, this was particularly painful. And the few black kids in my class... We'd put the textbook up over our face and slink down in our chairs because it was also embarrassing. But over the
7: last 25 years, reconstruction in some schools has been given a much fuller treatment.
14: As soon as African-Americans have the right to vote, they
1: become a majority in several southern states.
7: And in 2017, the Reconstruction-era National Monument was established in Robert Smalls' hometown of Beaufort, South Carolina. Just down the road, you can see the house he lived in as a free man and the church he attended. Alongside it is a bust of Smalls, the only known statue in the South of any of the pioneering black congressmen of Reconstruction.
4: They were no different than other congressmen. They weren't all great geniuses, and they weren't uh, rabble, uh, like you saw in uh, Birth of a Nation. Well, I think the black congressmen are worth studying, not only in their own right, but as symbols of a very big effort in our history to make this an interracial democracy.
2: The Trump administration's policy towards transgender members of the military is the subject of our commentary from Charlotte Clymer, a press secretary at the Human Rights Campaign.
12: As a military veteran and proud transgender woman, the Trump administration's attempted ban on transgender people in the military hits home for me. It's personal. For over three years, I carried caskets in Arlington National Cemetery. I folded American flags for loved ones. I ceremoniously unloaded transfer cases of the remains of our fallen warriors in uniform, being carried home from Iraq and Afghanistan to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. Every casket and transfer case I carried was covered by an American flag. Every single one. And that is all I remember about any of them. I never knew their race. I never knew their religion or education or birthplace. I didn't know their political party or who they voted for. I didn't know what music they liked or their guilty pleasure movie or what they did with their friends on the last Saturday night in their hometown before shipping out to war. I'll never know the names of their parents and spouses and children. I'll never know the intimate details of their personal lives. I'll never know who they loved and how they saw themselves in the world. All I know about those I carried was that they died in selfless service and they wore the flag of this country to the grave. No one at Dover Air Force Base or Arlington National Cemetery asked if those we buried were secretly transgender. It didn't matter then, and it certainly doesn't matter now. The lies perpetuated about transgender people serving in the military have been thoroughly debunked and rejected by medical experts, by budget analysts, by military generals and admirals, by the vast majority of the American people, and not least, by history of Americans who have been barred from service and proved bigots wrong. They barred men of color, they barred women, They barred gay, lesbian, and bisexual people. We have been at this intersection of fear, cynicism, and outright ignorance many times. And we are always reminded that the only true threats to our country's strength are hatred and an absence of character. And yet, even while all this takes place, there are thousands of openly transgender service members, trained professionals, some of the best and brightest our military has to offer, serving right now many of them in combat zones. Despite the stress and anxiety from commander-in-chief who has no faith in them, a commander-in-chief who himself never served a single day in uniform, they continue to meet the highest standards of excellence. Given all this, I have to ask my fellow Americans, is this what we want our beloved country to stand for?
2: I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning.